The waiter recommended a Basque liquor called Izara. He brought in the bottle and poured a liqueur glass full. He said, Izara was a flower of the Pyrenees, the veritable flowers of the Pyrenees. It looked like hair oil and smelled like Italian strega. Ernest Hemingway, The Sun Also Rises. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 274 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where I track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that I can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by my friends, Henry Price and Alain Royer, a duo of spirits experts sporting a collective century of wisdom in the distilling and import-export industry. They're here to taste and talk me through an herbal liqueur from the Basque region of France that's set to explode here in the U.S. market with the highly allocated and restricted nature of green and yellow chartreuse that's occurred over the last year or two. Izara has a long and compelling history as a regional specialty from the mountainous borderlands at the junction of France and Spain, but it's virtually unknown here in the U.S., However, if Henry and Alain have anything to say about it, this duo of alpine liqueurs is about to rise out of obscurity and make its mark on the cocktail world. But before we start placing our bets on this herbal unicorn brand, let's take a pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Emoi Je Te Dis Mode. To make it, you'll need one and a half ounces of Armagnac, which is a French grape brandy, one quarter ounce Izara Jaune, or yellow, one quarter ounce Luxardo Maraschino liqueur, and one dash of aromatic bitters. Combine these ingredients in a cocktail mixing beaker with ice, give them a good stir until they're properly combined, chilled, and diluted, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass, and enjoy. This is a Prohibition-era drink developed in France as an homage to a Bordeaux-born vaudeville-style actress named Maud Loti, nicknamed La Maud, who starred in dozens of hit plays throughout the 1920s and 30s. This cocktail is allegedly a creation of her very own, and it was published in a 1929 cocktail compendium called Cocktail de Paris. It also won her first prize in a celebrity cocktail competition that same year. But let's talk about what's going on in the glass with this drink. It's a not-so-subtle Manhattan riff. Alright, maybe it straddled the line between old-fashioned and Manhattan, but I think with the aromatized ingredients, we're definitely leaning more Manhattan in quality. But that's okay. There's nothing wrong with the Manhattan. The subtlety of any Manhattan lies in its execution. Most closely, the Emoi Jete de Mode reminds me of a rye and applejack cocktail called the Diamondback, which employs yellow chartreuse as its sweet modifier. Here, instead, we're leaning on the mild nuttiness of the maraschino liqueur and the elegance of the Izara Jaune to be in conversation with the pot-distilled Armagnac and the spicy dash of aromatic bitters. 
This cocktail was dusted off and reintroduced to the world back in 2019 by bartender Frankie Marshall, but she was forced back then to use yellow chartreuse to make it feasible for bartenders to mix. But guess what? Back in 1929, it was originally made with Izara, and now that it's once again available in the US, I think it's only appropriate that we use the ingredient that Maud originally intended. So, now that you've got another piece of Prohibition-era cocktail history to add to your collection, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this spirited discussion with Alain Royer and Henry Price, some of the topics we discuss include what precisely Izara liqueur is, and the geographic and cultural forces that allowed it to remain more of a regional specialty while chartreuse enjoyed wider exposure. How other specialty liqueurs like Jägermeister and Luxardo Maraschino managed to burst the bonds of their relative niche statuses and become heavyweights in the cocktail world. The unique culture and flavors of the Basque nation, a culture that transcends political and geographic boundaries and holds tenaciously to its own distinct identity, even in today's increasingly remixed and digital world. Then, of course, we taste through Izara's two flagship offerings, Izara Vert, or Green, and Izara Jaune, or Yellow. We compare and contrast these spirits with their logical chartreuse analogs and explore the best service methods and use cases for each. We wrap up the conversation by reviewing how Henry and his team are rolling out this beautiful duo of alpine liqueurs in liquor stores and bars across the country and give you some insights on how to get your hands on a bottle. Along the way, we cover the medicinal underpinnings of all contemporary Genepes and Amari, the crucial role of the Armagnac region in the production of these Basque spirits, the one Izara product that didn't quite survive the test of time, and much, much more. As I mentioned at the top of this intro, Henry and Alain have a combined 100 years of experience in their fields. It's hard to sit down with two people and benefit from that much sheer accumulated knowledge. And so when Henry says this Izara thing seems to have some serious traction, guess what? I'm inclined to believe him, especially after tasting it. I hope that, like me, you'll soon have the opportunity to sample these two beautiful liqueurs and decide for yourself how they stack up against the 10,000-pound, 120-ingredient gorilla that is chartreuse. Right now, these bottles are listed at Total Wine for about $60 a bottle, so we'll hope that that price point stays somewhat durable over time. But until you do get your hands on a bottle, please enjoy this fascinating deep dive with my friends, Alain Royer and Henry Price. Alain, Henry, welcome to the podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Starting with Alain, perhaps, since Henry, you've, you've been a guest here on the podcast before. So starting with Alain, can you both either introduce yourself for the first time or briefly introduce yourself to our listeners so that we understand who you are and what you do? Alain, oh, take it away. Like Henry, I've been about 50 years in the industry of spirits, cognac, liqueurs, and many other projects. I live in France. I have an upbringing in cognac, uh, born and raised in cognac, did everything in the cellar that you can imagine from grape picking, distilling, blending, aging. And in the course of my life, I started to make uh, liqueurs and get into that world. 
kind of, that's a that's about it, you know. And I have a fantastic network in the U.S. Uh, boosted by uh, my partnership with Henry and a couple of other people, but mainly Henry and his uh, daughter Nikki. Now that we've reached a decent age, both of us, I must say we're having a fantastic fun in the trade. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, we'll get into more of your background and expertise as we dive into the product here. But uh, Henry, we've already had you on. Uh, this is back a couple of years ago at Tales of the Cocktail with another member of the price imports portfolio. But give us the 411. What do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? So on a day-to-day -day basis, my number one priority is getting the boxes out the door that came in. But uh, so like Alon, 50 years in the business, you know, we my family immigrated to America from Germany in 1961. Uh, my father at that time brought a few German spirits over. Along the way, uh, a few years later, he picked up Jägermeister. And then in 1974, I joined his company. Actually, I just came in to do delivery work. I had no intention of being in the liquor business. I was just going to make some money and help them out. And 50 years later, I'm here. A lot of it is because the business is very unique, very special. We've made a lot of friends like Alon and uh, suppliers all over the globe. Some that have sold their companies. You know, we built in the prior company, we built Kunamara for Cooley, which was their stepchild and became their star for Luxardo. We built Luxardo Moroschino. And so we've had our hands on a lot of products, which is where this podcast is going to lead us to what just very well may be another one of those unicorns, because out of 50 years of doing this, 90 plus percent of what you touch doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, it's and it's interesting, too. I mean, I, I love that you just kind of you you really gave us a time warp there because here it is 2023 you both spent 50 years in the business and you're dropping names like Luxardo Maraschino and Jägermeister that I as somebody who enjoys today's contemporary cocktail scene am very well acquainted with and most people like me understand these both to be incredibly successful brands and so I think maybe the thread that we should try and trace here as we talk and taste our way through the subject of this interview is maybe what distinguishes those unicorns, as you mentioned, that kind of really rise to prominence from some of the products that may be equally as delicious, but never quite find their niche. So I'm going to leave that up in the clouds as 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 a, an influence for us, a, a hanging question as we chat. But I I think we should just dive right into it by asking Alain, uh, as as our French expert on the subject, what is Izara liqueur? Huh. Well, Izara liqueur is a mountain liqueur. Everywhere in Europe, wherever there's a mountain you've got these kind of liqueurs. Call it Genipi, call it Chartreuse, call it Izara, and uh, there are a few others. The list is too long to name. Uh, most of the time, those liqueurs were not liqueurs. They were medicine, you know, cure. Uh, they, they were there 
you know, grandmother recipes or old monk recipes to cure illnesses, plagues, or many, you know, when your stomach was wrong, you, you took it. Then over the years, uh, people were kind of reluctant of the, uh, drinking those high-proof liqueurs made of maceration of herbs, spices, roots, leaves, or just name them. They took many. And then slowly they decided, well, let's make it more palatable. So uh, from high proof, they were putting down the proof and then added uh, probably a little sugar, diluting it with alcohol. And there we are. We came to liqueurs. And then people started to think, wow, that medicine is good to drink also. So you, you have many, many examples. I mean, you could talk about vermouth because it's the same story. You can talk about um, uh, pastis. And, uh, it's just a normal evolution. And some of the liquors, of those liquors, have had a lucky story because they were on a exchange route, you know, a route where you have traffic. So in the Rhone Valley, well, well, there you are, Chartreuse, you know, you go down the mountain and you're on the Rhone Valley with the traffic between the Mediterranean, Paris, and then the shores. Talk about cognac. Cognac, it was obvious because it was a very gentle river bringing the, the product to a nice, safe harbor, and it could, it could be shipped. Armagnac, no. Armagnac is in the middle of nowhere, the foot of the Pyrenees. So go to Chartreuse, you had the same thing. Locked at the foot of the Pyrenees, near the Atlantic Ocean, and in the Basque country, because the Basque always kept everything for themselves, you know. It's not a, it's a nation, it's not a country, it's a civilization living both sides of the Spanish border. They do their own things, they have their own language, which is very difficult to trace to. Uh, nobody knows really where it comes from. It has Egyptian roots in their language, that's for sure. But nobody exported it because how did you do it? So this is how this gem, you know, was developed locally and became a liqueur because the local guys love to drink it. Hmm. So I'm going to kind of summarize that in my own words, make sure that I'm getting it right. And then maybe Henry can help us to continue elaborate on uh, what kind of distinguishes Izara, which is this Alpine style liqueur from Chartreuse through the case, the sort of case study that everybody in the world knows, or at least in the cocktail world. So you're saying that Chartreuse, well, being smack dab in the middle of France, maybe was a, a lucky a lucky thing for these monks. They, anybody who wanted to get to or from Paris, to or from, you know, the Côte d'Azur, uh, especially um, during times before modern roadways, would very likely end up passing through this. So you get a lot of, you know, kind of natural spread and diffusion of this. On the other hand, if you do look at where Izara is made, it is 
in a problematically mountainous place right up against the ocean at the juncture of you know, of two modern nations and in a in a region that traditionally Aragon had some had a lot of you know Aquitaine rather uh, had had uh, quite a bit of you know uh, political upheaval. So I, I, having you put it in context like that makes me understand a little bit more about why maybe it has less uh, spread than Chartreuse. But on the other hand, when I was looking at the research that you sent me, it seems like at certain points in the 20th century, Izaro was huge. So Henry, I don't, I don't know if you can maybe comment on some of that, some of that mystique uh, that was built up in the early part of the 20th century. Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's interesting, right? If we segue back just a little bit, Jägermeister, right? Jägermeister was already huge to a big extent in Germany. It was the worker's drink. You know, you had a beer, boilermaker kind of thing. Northern Germany, where it's quite cold, Jägermeister is a potent uh, liqueur. And, you know, beer was a staple in Germany, basically a food item. So it was strong there. Italians like bitter liqueurs. That was their first big market after Germany because Italians, Amaro, Jägermeister's and Amaro. Uh, over here, it was a struggle for me, for my father. We sold it to German clubs, German restaurants. Everybody else thought we were selling cough syrup and trying to poison them. And uh, so it was a pretty tough sell initially. And then Sydney Frank Company came along put a lot of money into it, along with uh, the Moss family, the, the Moss company that owned Jägermeister. And so you can attribute that particular brand's meteoric rise directly to money. They hired a lot of girls, pretty girls. They, they did a lot of crazy advertising. They promoted it everywhere. It was a big budget item like you would get from a global company, which where Sidney Frank came from came from Shenley, which was the biggest liquor company of its day, you know. Then you go to Luxardo, whole different animal. Luxardo, and the reason I'm doing this, because it, it, it's not Izara, but I think it gives a little bit of an insight how these products get to where they get. So what you've got with Luxardo is that it was with the Trelato family out of Chicago. They decided we don't want to be in the liquor business. We're wine people. We own wineries. We import wines. We're very successful. And they dropped all their liquor products. And so Luxardo was one of them. And they were actually doing quite well with it in the Midwest, which was their strength back in the 90s. And Daryl Cordy, Cordy Brothers in Sacramento, very famous individual if you're old enough to remember, but Cordy Brothers is still a destination store in Sacramento, which by the way has placed a very large opening order for a single store for Izara. But Daryl Cordy's friends with Franco Luxardo. Daryl knows everybody. He's, he's encyclopedic on the industry, on food, beverage, table settings, culture. So uh, Daryl said, you need to go talk to Henry. Well, my company was very tiny at that point. I had lost the prior company. We were maybe six years into the new company, which is hodling today. And Franco and I visited maybe three times. He came over from Italy and then he eventually gave us the brand. And so now I'm running around. I'm excited because it's historic. It, it just has a beautiful story and a beautiful family brand. And that's really what we attach ourselves to. 
And so now I'm running around tasting people on Luxardo. They go, what do I do with this? He says, I just, you know, this stuff tastes odd. It's this, it's that. And I said, well, it's unbelievable in cannolis. That's, it's famous for being used in Italian cannolis. It's unbelievable over vanilla bean ice cream. And then, so we're moving, we're in the 90s. And as we move through the 90s and get to the 2000s and the cocktail culture starts, you know, now Ryan McGarrian's doing aviation gin. He's calling up, hey, can I get a little Luxardo and some of your cherries? You know, we want to make aviations. Um, and that kind of starts rolling. And along the way, you know, here is Chartreuse, which has been a famous brand, but it, it hasn't been on fire anywhere, you know. And bartenders are looking to recreate cocktails, many of them that are historic. And the last word comes back, you know, uh, you know, in, in that time frame, Luxardo, even before that, we started gaining momentum, you know, the aviation cocktail, people, bartenders started making other creative cocktails with it because suddenly they were made aware of it by a particular event. And so out of all the products, and I can go into hundreds of them over the last 50 years that we've tried some lost, some launched and went on to other companies and got bigger and bigger because, you know, we don't own the brands and tends to be what a lot of people like to do. Let a little guy build it and take it away. But uh, we, we try to prevent that these days. And back to the chartreuse thing. So now we've got this liqueur that bartenders are in love with and not just for the last word, but that's a signature drink of it. As Alon was doing some research, you know, he, you saw some of the classic drinks, others that come up with uh, that are in that presentation I showed you that people make that are simple and things, but people like the liqueur. Of course, they like the story with the monks and all these herbal liqueurs do go back to those pharmaceutical recipes where, you know, like the Chinese with their teas and herbal things to, you know, clean your liver and and, and help your body heal itself. A lot of these concoctions started that way and they get preserved with alcohol and then you add sugar and suddenly it tastes pretty darn good. And we have this chartreuse phenomena that now for whatever reason, basically the monks don't want to make more, you know, anytime somebody, something starts selling and the producer says, I'm not going to make any more. Everybody wants more. Yeah. And, and that's why I say a unicorn, because about three years ago, I think, well, it was actually before COVID, Alan and I talked about Izara. We didn't allow the 700 mLs in the U.S. yet. And so, you know, we're talking about it and we're going, well, all we could do is a stock bottle, just some bottle off the shelf to slap the label on, you know, which is really a difficult way to go with a historic brand. You know, you just don't carry the credibility without a trademark look. And uh, then, you know, the chartreuse thing happened with them cutting back. The 700 mLs get approved by the federal government as a legal U.S. size. And there we are suddenly. And I'm going, I got to go back and revisit this product because, you know, and it would have been, I would have revisited it anyway, even the chartreuse phenomena hadn't happened. Uh, but it did, it happened. And, you know, we, we took, you know, I don't want to say we took advantage of it. I mean, you know, you, you're not really taking advantage of anything. You never really know 
Um, there was skeptics. We gave the product. I had initial samples. We sent them to certain distributors. We had a distributor in Massachusetts. Immediately ran it to a bartender and said, this isn't chartreuse, which, of course, that's not magic. We know it's not chartreuse. It's Izara. Right. And, you know, so they passed on it. And, and it's the first product in 50 years that I've come across that for us as a little specialty importer, we got instantaneous national distribution. We're in, you know, I mean, we're in almost every state uh, more than we will be because we're way behind. You know, it, it, you, again, you don't predict these things. You don't, you don't create these things with small brands with no budgets. Sometimes things happen that are kind of, I guess, like when a, uh, an Instagram post goes viral. Right. Yeah. There's definitely a, uh, there's definitely a virality to the Izara phenomenon right now. Mm-hmm. And maybe, uh, what we should do now, uh, is Alain, which of the, which of the two varieties should I taste first? Should I go jaune or vert? Vert. You should go green because that's okay. the iconic one. Okay. Uh, well, and so it's interesting that you bring that up because there are a few famous depictions of Izara uh, on posters, ads, I guess, and it seems like they're always showcasing the jaune. Oh, yes, because at the time, the jaune was the easiest consume because it was little mellower, little easier to consume. There was always a little honey to uh, round the edges, smoothen it. The little touch of Armagnac made it very sexy. You know, it's interesting what Alain just said, because on the the June, the yellow, the honey, you know, I am sure a lot of your listeners, especially right now, we're in the cold season and people are getting sore throats and getting colds and a lot of the medications out there, right? The, the cough syrups and think they have honey. You know, honey is sort of a healer in itself, right? They, you know, they say that honeycomb, you know, eating from the honeycomb is good to, to help you fight the allergies and, and other illnesses and things. Right, it, right. It, there's a health aspect that wraps into historical, which, of course, you can't put in print and you can't say about a, a spirit that it is, has a medicinal value. But... We all certainly drink a lot of these after dinner as digestives. And while I don't taste out of the 500 products we have, all of them very often, because we have a lot of them, I'm just sampling the, uh, the Verit right now. I'm going, that's it. all on its own, not even cold. What a fantastic after dinner drink that is. It's, oh. it's it, it just has the feeling of uh, like settling from a heavy meal. On the nose is lovely. The Glencairn is a perfect uh, glass. Henry is using the shot glass because he's being reasonable. Yeah, well, this this is a lousy glass. But if it tastes great with a lousy glass, you can only imagine how good it's going to taste with a good glass. But, Eric, you're doing the perfect thing. So you're drinking it, obviously, at room temperature. Perfect. Out of this glass... Uh, I would not suggest to put some ice in it because it tends to dilute it, but it can be a little easier. The best way when you're doing it neat is to put it in the 
freezer, in the, even in the deep freeze, when it is ice cold, it becomes thick, mellow, gentle in the mouth. It, it is quite extraordinary. Same thing goes for the yellow. But this is out of the green there. And when you have it ice cold, then I would say have it in a shot glass. You know, like in the one of those small tequila shot glass. It is just perfect. And in the Basque country where Henry was with me, and we were not talking about Izara, in November 22, yeah, the, the story of Izara really started in... April? No, we start. We started really talking about Izara three months later. Here yeah. we were in the Basque country, enjoying the, the food. Just, it's so beautiful. It's just one of the most beautiful places you can be. It, it just has such a wonderful feeling, from the the wild seas that are there to the beautiful rugged mountains to the food, the people. You know, it's it's sort of, you know, it it is to France in a similar way that Alsace is to France. They're part of France, but they're different. Right. Oh, totally different. Um, so you've, you've been tasting it. It's, it, it's, it's thick, it's flowery, it's elegant, it's broad. I mean, it has so many uh, qualities, and it ends up beautifully a meal. Or you can have a shot any time in the day, of course. The yellow is more gentle. You know? uh, the yellow is less a conversation breaker as would the green be. Which, by the way, they're both 80 proof. Oh, uh, yes. Which is not the case of Chartreuse. They have two um, different proof. But you know what? Doesn't matter. Oh, I can hear the sugar. <laughs> Oh yeah, oh yeah. You let you let. He still has a little chartreuse. Both Alon and I have been trying to buy some bottles retail. I have a tiny amount of the jaune. Uh, I have no green chartreuse left, but I figured that I, I would do the side by side where I could. So I, I know our listeners are going to want to hear some tasting notes, and they're going to want to do some comparing and contrasting from chartreuse. Obviously what everybody's eyes are fixed on, right? From, from the peanut gallery, from the audience here, the question we all want to know is, can I sub this in one-to-one -one for chartreuse? I'm not going to answer that question right now because I think ultimately the answer is sure or maybe, uh, but I, I want to get the, the flavor notes. So for the green, I don't have the chartreuse to compare it to, but I've drunk a lot of chartreuse and I have a pretty reliable recall of that flavor profile. The difference visually is this has a different green than green chartreuse. It has a deeper, it's lighter in saturation, but it's deeper in color. I'll say that again. It's lighter in saturation. So it's a paler green, but the green that is here as compared to green chartreuse is more of like a pine green than it is like a, a leafy green. I think the green chartreuse mm -hmm. is more in the, the leafy as opposed to the pine. So that's compelling to me. This seems a little bit thinner um, in the glass, which is not necessarily necess uh, like how it's going to act on the palate. 
And I'm noticing the big difference here. You get some notes that are very similar. You get the spearmint, you get the alpine flowers, you get the grass, you get you get some um, some really nice uh, base note spices. But there's a peppery note, almost like a lemon pepper that kind of runs through almost like maybe even like a mustard seed in, in a way that kind of runs through the Izara that is definitely absent from what I experienced in chartreuse. And so tasting this for the first time, that's really what I'm latching onto. I'm saying, Ooh, this is different. And when I ever, every time I take a sip, I'm like, ah, it seems like chartreuse. And then that little pepper note kicks in. I don't know Alain, if, if there's some particular botanical that's doing that. You are absolutely correct. I mean, it's uh, the, I, I, we could mention all the botanicals, but I mean, the sum of the botanicals, you know, the result is totally different than just a pure addition of everything. It's a conjunction of everything. Right. And it gives this, it has this little peppery, anise, minty uh, yeah. finish, thyme. Uh, I love the little thyme that you find at, uh, at the back. Um, That's what stays at the very end, that kind of piney, almost like you're, you know, in that wet, cold pine forest and you can really smell mm. the trees. You're kind of that flavor stays on your palate. The sugar is very subdued. It's nowhere near as sweet as Jägermeister or, in fact, most liqueurs. But of course, alcohol cuts the sweetness, right? So it is 80 proof. The other thing I find, and I don't know if Alon agrees, but, you know, and, and of course, I know this will come up later in, in various questions, but it's it's not 55 degrees or 110 proof. It's 80 proof. But And it, it holds and itself at 80 proof. Right. At different, at, at, you know, different spirits at different proofs. Um some at a lower proof taste stronger than one at a higher proof, right? Depending on the sugar, you know, again, the, the, the alchemy of the particular uh, liqueur, you know, and this has, to me, it has a pretty solid bite for 80 proof, you know, so that it, it does how that does. works in the cocktails. That'll be the, uh, the mixologist uh, magic that they do. And things because it's you know it, it's its own product it's not anything it's not somebody else's product invented to fill a space it is its own product and brand and and was loved for that so now i'm nosing the jaune and the yellow chartreuse side by side here you may be able to tell on the video that there's a slight this is the yellow chartreuse here that i'm indicating this is the Izara Jaune. There's a slightly deeper yellow on the Izara Jaune. What I'm getting from the chartreuse is almost like a, I don't want to call it an artificial yellow, but it's almost more of like a, like a turmeric-y, saffron-y yellow. Very, very bright. And it has some like high, high raisiny, dusty notes that you would, ex that we all know and, and are familiar with from the yellow mm. chartreuse. But then once I get to the Izara, it's it, it's a very different aroma. It's it's softer, it's rounder, it feels almost more homespun. It feels uh, like something I would 
drink at home as opposed to in a fancy cocktail bar. Um, it feels more, more rustic. Craft. I would use the word, it's more craft. One, Chartreuse is more, quote-unquote, industrial. I mean, I'm going to be killed for that word. But the, the Zara is more local. You know, it's yeah. more... It's... Uh, you, you feel the honey, the saffron, the citrus uh, immediately. Yeah, yeah uh, to me, it's it's got some gingerbread, the citrus. Um, gingerbread it's, it's, it's a great thing. Cinnamon, great. cinnamon, coriander. Yeah, wow. Yeah, very, very different from the yellow chartreuse. And I, I feel like, you know, all cards out on the table. We know a couple of things about the difference between green and yellow chartreuse. Three of them are important to me. One is the proof difference, 55% uh, versus 40 at the yellow chartreuse. One of them is the distillate base uh, that goes into it. The green chartreuse is a uh, sugar beet base versus the yellow chartreuse having the distilled grape base. Um, so there's another difference between the two. But I, I think the, the big difference is people respect green chartreuse in a way that they don't respect yellow chartreuse. Yellow chartreuse is only featured in a couple of cocktails and only in the amount of maybe a quarter to a half an ounce. Whereas you're going three quarters of an ounce to an ounce of the green in any of like the last word um, format drinks. So it's always sort of a second class citizen. But I, I, I think when you put the green and the yellow Izara side by side, it's more of a it's it, it, it's more of a conversation between the two. It's like, well, this one's more of your medicinal and this one is more of your sort of like winter um it, it just seems like they represent different seasons and different functions rather than one being drastically more interesting than the other i don't know if that makes any sense yeah no i i totally it agree does. you know interesting too eric is because we I, as a little company we rarely get a picture into a marketplace the size of the u.s immediately you know, usually it comes in little increments, you know, and you because it, it'll our products will sell better in certain pockets. You know, people that know the product or have traveled and want a product that we import or something. Uh, but this because it went national and it's interesting, you know, without throwing uh, companies out there that are carrying it nationally. In some stores, the allocation was more yellow than green. Wow. So they, it's a large company that took it national. And and they have data that we would never have our hands on, you know. So they have data on what yellow chartreuse did in their stores when they could get it, what green chartreuse did when they could get it. And so, you know, it's made it hard for us to know what to order. You know, the first shipment was 50-50 because that's what you do. And it wasn't huge, so it sold out. The second shipment, I go, well, we're for certainly going to sell a lot more green than yellow. And we've been selling, you know, I, so I, I, I basically did, um, I think, 60% green, 40% yellow. We've still been selling almost 50-50. And, you know, and I don't have any basis yet from the full rotation, right? Once, you know, product comes in, goes to distributors, goes to retailers or bars, gets used and you get a second order really by third orders from our distributors we get an indication that oh not only are they filling their pipeline but the product's selling and people are buying it 
and and then you start really kind of seeing. But I totally agree. I I mean, both of these are delightful. I mean, we're just tasting them straight on their own. No cocktail, nothing. Uh, not even like Alon said, out of the freezer. I can only imagine how great the honey would be out of the freezer. Oh, oh sure. It's, yeah. it's, it's delightful. You could put it on ice cream. You can put it... <laughs> I mean, what you can do, baking with those two, either yellow or green, is just fabulous. I'm having well, a Well, they'll, they'll flambe, right, Alon? They're 80 yeah. proof, they'll flambe. You know, you could do a crepe Suzette with the honey. That, that, that would be fantastic. So one of the things that I think, it took me, it took me a while because I don't have an extensive background in Armagnac. But I think one of the things that I really like about the Izara Jaune as compared to the Yellow Chartreuse is that the character of the Armagnac that's used in the blending process really contributes some lovely notes to it. And, you know, uh, you get it less in the green just because the, the potency of the herbs is just at a different level. And that's fine. But I think I think it's nice in the yellow that Armagnac comes out. So maybe this is a good opportunity, Alain, for you to kind of explain how the Armagnac gets brought into this. Obviously, it's a neighboring region to yes. the, the Basque country, but how, how does it get worked into the production process? Well, you gave the, the answer a little earlier when you were saying that the yellow chartreuse was made with a spirit from grape. So there you are. I mean... The local spirit, I mean, where do you find a spirit with grape that could uh, help smooth it, uh, make more the, the, the liquor more elegant, was to use Armagnac, which was next door. Simple as that. Right. And, you know, and Alon, you know, because uh, Alon has dragged me through the Armagnac country quite extensively, and Armagnac itself is a unique brandy from cognac or other type of distillations. And it, it, it gives an elegance that belongs to the category of the yellow, which is meant for a bigger, easier distribution. I like that. An elegance and elegance. Uh, I, oh, I this, couldn't agree it, it's more. exactly that. It really is. Now, uh, I I want to talk a little bit about the future and what that holds for Izara, but you know, one thing we we may have glossed over slightly, we've referenced to it, we've gestured at it several times, uh, is the is the unique culture of the Basque country because we 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 have a a few enclaves of of Basque uh, immigrants here in the United States. Out west, there's there's a lot more um, folks of Basque descent. Than on the East Coast where I am, um, they have uh, quite a. They, you know, ob obviously we've got the Spanish Basque country as being different than the French Basque country. So, I, I guess, how do we think about French Basque country as opposed to Spanish Basque country in terms of a culture, and or or maybe a cuisine is more appropriate there. And then, how do we think of like? What to you seem to be hallmarks of Basque culture? Because the the big cultural reference to Izara is one from Hemingway in The Sun Also Rises. 
He said the waiter recommended a Basque liquor called Izara. He brought in a bottle and poured a liqueur glass full. He said Izara was a flower of the Pyrenees, the veritable flowers of the Pyrenees. It looked like hair oil and smelled like Italian strega. That is the big reference. But what is the Basque culture? What what was Hemingway soaking in when he wrote that? Well, he was deeply involved in in the wars, you know, and the fights that were going there. I would not separate the French Basque and the Spanish Basque. It's okay. a nation with a common language. And they have very strong ties together. And for them, a border does not exist. They just cross from one place to the other. They were, they have always have been the best smugglers of the, you know, in the, in the, in the region. But they have their own ways of living, their own language, their own drinks. The other drink, Elton Izara, is cider. You have uh, cider companies absolutely everywhere. They fish. They love the sardines. They grill the sardines. It's a tight-knit community who lives on the both sides of the border. So, yes, there's a very big Basque diaspora in the United States. You have Basque streets in San Diego. The first Basque who came there is because the families were big. Uh, you know, they could not marry everybody and buy land and the things. So some of them had to be priests, soldiers, custom guys. And then when there was no post, they gave them a little bag of gold and get out of there. And in the Basque country, in the 16th century, 17th, there was a lot of whaling. So they naturally came to the U.S. in the San Diego area as, you know, whalers. And then over the centuries, the Basque have always been very, very keen in cattle keeping, sheep and cows. When the immigrants came up from France, from Europe, should I say, uh, keeping cattle was just a thing for the Indians. You know, it was they were despised of them. So because the cowboys were not cowboys, you know, the, the people going to be the Americans, they, it was the Basques, Bakersfield. Look at, you know, the cattle growing there. And then they went to right. Reno, and then they went, you know. And uh, I think I counted with Henry about 40 Basque communities and associations around the country. They played the Basque pelota, you know, this ball game against the wall. They have competitions. They, uh, you've got Basque schools. Uh, where they're really going on learning Basques. And you have a few bloggers and, you know, uh, people on the internet with uh, Basque newsletters where everything Basque is perfect. There, there is grounds, and we're going to build this. And what is fantastic with Izara, as Henry pointed out, is that we are hitting, because of the Chateau situation, the mixology world, we are hitting on the retail because retailers don't have any more chartreuse to be given to them. 
And then we're going to please the Basques, who are so enthused with their country, their origin, we're bringing back their home product. Well, one thing that you said that I'm sort of keying into now is that our world is similarly without borders as the Basque country sort of disregarding the political borders of France and Spain, right? We, we live the digital world that we inhabit and a world in which Henry can bring in containers full of Izara into the United States is one that's maybe a little different than the world that Hemingway was in when, when he sat down at this cafe and, and ordered this drink. And so to me, it seems like there's maybe an interesting, maybe this is a challenge, right? Because one, one, of, the, one of the words that always follows Basque in international news headlines is separatists, right? Basque separatists want to, you know, they, they want to maintain, you know, assert or maintain some sort of independence from the, the, the political entities of the region. They live in the mountains. They're, they're, they're a, a close knit kind of community. The reason why I ask about Basque culture is because I'm fascinated by it. I feel like if I knew more Basque people, I would probably really share some cultural affinities with them, but I just don't know all that many things about it. And so this is where bartenders do amazing work. They're the ones who can take the flavors, tell the cultural stories. And so I see this kind of being a great opportunity to get some people sharing more about Basque culture by way of these flavors, because if you gave me an opportunity to attend some sort of Basque food and drink festival, or you know, even just like a theme night at, at a bar that has a lot of Basque ingredients, like I'm there. I want to learn about this, and I want to do it through their food and drink because I feel like that's the best way to learn about a culture. So I don't know. Is that is that seem does that seem like it might be part of your strategy with how to teach people about this? For sure. The, the biggest oh. thing is because Alan Alan is already talk to people that do uh, Basque newsletters, Basque website. We had to back off because we, you know, it's like I said, the, the, the brand's gone viral on us. We're, we're probably a year out from figuring out how much we need, at which times we need it, who wants it. I mean, our entire idea at first was to get into all the bars. I mean, my, my, people that are friends that are bartenders and have said for the last few years, Henry, you, you know, cause we import a product from Abruzzo, Italy called Centerba. It's the original Centerba and, uh, you know, goes from a thousand year old recipe and, and it's in the same world. And I had some bartender friends say, you got to really promote that this before we took the Holy Zara thing serious. And so I figured, you know, we would be bringing this in and Alan and I would attack the on-premise community, the people we know, and say, here, try this and make cocktails with it. It's where we know the brands are normally built, and it usually comes at a pretty big expense. And a lot of people that say, okay, we need it, we want it, and other, a lot of portions of that world say, well, we'll take a few cases for free, or, you know, what's, what's the promo in it, or, you know, what's... You know, it's 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 an ugly fact of the underbelly of the business to pay for play. We're not going to have that problem with this product because they're going to we're going to have to allocate it for the next year or so. Because I I don't know if I bring in one thousand cases or five thousand cases, am I going to sell it all? 
And, right. you know, we don't have unlimited funds. We've got to try to maintain a growing business profile with it. And so it'll probably be a while before it'll be in bars where we thought is where we would start. But and, and so what's happened is just the opposite is retailers are jumping on it. Retailers, there's no pay, you know, you know, pay to play type thing. You know, there, there, there could be with certain programs on large brands, but this is just going to be a shelf stock item. They're not Cordy Brothers in Sacramento. The only one I'm throwing out there, they're floor stacking it. <laughs> you know, that's that's right. how excited they are that it's coming. Um, and uh, that's just amazing to me that a store would immediately want to floor stack it. You know, just amazing. I've never had that happen with a liqueur. I, like I said, 50 years, never had that happen. I never sold a single floor stack of Jägermeister. <laughs> Sorry, I, I wanted just to say one thing about the Basque country. You've got the Spanish part of the Basque country between Bilbao and San Sebastian. Rich industrial area with harbors, shipping. It was big fishing. The French Basque is a little smaller, but they speak the same language. They are brothers, family. You know? And uh, when you had, and Spain always wanted to put a big lid on the Basque people because just for the tax, to get taxes as much as out of them as they could. So, and they, they reacted very much. And... Uh, um, they stuck together with their language and that, and then brutally, you know, fought the Spanish government. Uh, it's long being said that uh, when there was a problem and the Spanish uh, government was uh, raiding uh, the Basque country on the Spanish side, well, all the weapons would be cleared through the or smuggled through the border and hidden in the French Basque country. And then when things smooth them, they would bring back their weapons and done. Now, it's a long past thing, I think. But they still stick together with their culture. And I think this is very important because Izara rides on this, this story, on the myth of the Basques being a strong nation. I'm not saying a country, I'm saying a nation because it's a language. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's definitely a cultural nation for sure. You know, it's, you can just tell, you know, but that's not that unusual in Europe. You've got these carved out areas that are very strongly influenced by their people and their culture for that area. You know, like I mentioned earlier, Alsace. I have friends that live very close to Alsace. And in fact, that's an interesting uh, little segue as well, because back in the, in the 70s, my father had an O to V line out of the Black Forest. We lost that line. Uh, there was some family issues and things and the company kind of split up the payoff family members and it was gone. So I said to my father, you know, we should go after Schlatterer. Well, Schlatterer was the biggest German brand of Eau de Vie. And it was, you know, it was sold on Japan Airlines and miniatures. It was a well-known uh, German uh, Black Forest Eau de Vie brand. So my father said, no, they're not going to give that to us. Well, they gave it to us. You know, I made it 
made it sort of a passion thing. And they would always tell me, you know, but our O to V, this is why it's better. And the French are allowed to sugar their, you know, their, their crushed fruit and that raises the alcohol and this and that. And what did they do? Every time I visited them, they took me to Ricavir to eat and, and drink French uh, or Alsatian Eau de Vie, you know. But the Alsatians, you know, they don't view themselves as German or French. They view themselves as Alsatians. The Basque view themselves as Basque. And I guess the closest thing we get in the U.S. is those staunch Texans that view themselves <laughs> as we're from the Republic of Texas. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an endlessly interesting historical, cultural, culinary subject to dive into. And and, and I, I personally, I'm excited for what comes out of that. I, I, I hope that you'll I hope that you keep me CC'd on uh, on on any of these events that uh, that you put together, because I, I'm, I'm just dying to see what chefs and professional bartenders do with this. Not that I can't think of a few things, but I, I want to see what the people with the resources who use their brains for this on a daily, weekly basis can do with some of these products when they get into circulation. But you mentioned that it's going to be allocated for probably the next year. That's part of the insane part of this conversation. That's part of the reference to the unicorn that we're making. This is This has so much potential that we're currently kind of restricting it just a little bit to make sure that we can absolutely pour on all that gas if it is going to take off as much as we think it is. So where will people be able to buy this on liquor store shelves? Uh, are there any particular retailers or particular states that, that you want to call out, Henry? Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, you know, I mean, Total Wine and More and Binnie's in uh, Chicago they wasted no time. They saw it was available and they wasted no time. Uh, Cordy Brothers in Sacramento, immediately, no time. You know, it would be unfair to say that a huge number of independent retailers won't do the same. It's just, they're busy with the every day of running their business because that's what they are, an independent retailer versus the larger companies like a Binnie's. Of course, uh, you know, we know Brett Pantani at, at Binnie's is always on top of everything. I mean, you know, he just, he's so engaged in small brands and finding unicorns for Binnie's that that's why he spent virtually his entire career being their buyer. And, uh, and, and companies like Total just have a lot of data. Uh, I mean, yeah. it's envious. I'd love to see the data. And every once in a while, you can have a meeting with them and they'll they'll say, well, no, we know where something sells and where we want it. And, you know, and as it shifts, they have all that data from when it shifts, like, you know, when it shifted from COVID from wines to spirits, they redone their stores and moved spirits to the front of the store. Right. You know? But there are certainly players um, that I think, you know, I just we just don't have enough to chase everybody. Um, and it's. I, we can get enough, but, uh, you know, and I suppose if I'd have been blessed like Sidney Frank with a wife who was an heiress from Shendley and had that fortune, I'd probably go in and see if I can buy these Zara brand and, uh, and build it. But that isn't the case. So it's not that there's a, a real shortage. You know, this isn't like the monks. This is a business. They'd love to sell 
um, as much as chartreuse sells. And, you know, I mean, we'll see what history gives us on there. But if, if history tells me anything, it's going to be substantial because while it took a long time to build Luxardo, Luxardo is substantial. I mean, it's, right. there aren't very many bars that don't have a bottle of Luxardo. If this brand simply gets to where it's sort of a staple for bars, which is where Campari was for decades and decades before the whole Negroni craze took off, they were selling 20,000 cases a year um, just because people had a bottle under the bar. Somebody would come in, like somebody like Henry, that orders a Campari and soda because you can drink them all night and and still walk. And, uh, you know, so if, if something like that happens with the Zara for us, we'll have a 20,000 case brand. I've never had a 20,000 case brand. Uh, 50 years, I've never had that. Um, you know, so it's, uh, I think it's it's got a huge potential, but, you know, the world the world's going to tell that story. It, we won't be able to make that story happen outside of, you know, being engaged, like what the opportunity you're giving us. Uh, you know, different opportunities come along. We do have some people that we want to engage that Alon found that do a newsletter about food and, and Basque culture and history. And, you know, we had a pullback from promoting on them. I go, what are we promoting? You know, I mean, we're, we're selling everything we bring in right now. So we don't want to over promote until, you know, we have such a distribution that when you're promoting, you know, because often what will happen is we get an opportunity. Somebody interviews us or writes something on us about, one of our products and uh, and then people start requesting it and I don't have a distributor in that state. You know, so it's, um, right. I mean, I just had somebody request our Catalonian uh, Spanish vermouth in Vermont. Now that happens to work out because it's a liquor control state, they'll special order it for that, uh, for the account. But, uh, you know, if it's a, a, a liquor control state that doesn't special order or a state where I have, where we might not have a distributor willing to bring in a small quantity or something, then that's kind of where it ends until we build it. That's right. not the case here. You know, today I wrapped up the last distributor or holdout. They're just, everybody's super busy with the holidays, but I'm pushing everybody because the shipment came in and we need to get it out. And uh, we wrapped up Minnesota today. That was the last state where I didn't have a distributor committed. Wow. So suffice it to say, if you uh, need any help finding uh, Izara on liquor store shelves, you can, of course, get in touch with me and we'll, if, if I, if I can't point you to one of the bigger players, then, you know, maybe it's we can shoot to off your market. That's another one that got wrapped coming up into DC. Uh, it's coming to DC, Maryland, Delaware. Oh, okay. Opeachy Distributing is going to be handling it in all those three markets. All right. So DC bar, DC Maryland bartenders beyond beyond notice. Opeachy, you can you can place your orders there, and uh, yeah, that's super exciting. But yeah, if anybody is, this is early days, uh, but we're hoping it's it's the the early explosion that leads to it to a, a great further prolonged explosion of uh, more extensive distribution on and off premise for the Izara family. Uh, before we head off here, I, I realized that we've neglected one thing and that thing is Izara 5.4. Uh, this is something I ran across in my research 
It doesn't appear to be part of the current portfolio. It does appear to be roughly the same proof as green chartreuse. Uh, what is this product and you know, how, how do we think about it either historically uh, or potentially in the future? Well, I, I, I've been digging the information. The brand was bought many years ago by Cointreau, you know, the Remy Cointreau, but it was Cointreau at the time. And it was not a priority. It was not a big thing. And then one gentleman from the group got enthused about this brand and asked to buy it. Remy Quantrill said, no, but you can go there and try and revive it. And the guy was clever enough to make his researches compared to Chartreuse, and he found out that without having a lot of written proof, first of all, Zara was a kind of elixir made in those farms here and there, not in a convent, okay? Uh, And then, before it came to the Zara we know today, there was another stage. It's not, no proof about that, but it seems obvious when you read the story of Chartreuse and Jenny P and the others, that there has been an intermediary uh, liqueur, at high proof. And he decided to give a kick, a booster, to the brand by getting the 54. So Mm. it's something that this guy appropriated himself to do. Does it have a real historical origin? No, or we don't know. And the current owners, for the time being, are a little reluctant to say, let's go for it. Now, there's a marketing decision. It could be fun, but I think uh, Henry will stick and I, we're going to stick to what exists uh, because this is a historical uh, data that we have. Right. Yeah, you have a situation where when, you know, the, uh, the Quantro family who now controls the the global distribution of the brand, when um, they launched the 54 back in the 90s, it didn't do very well. So the argument is, why would we want to launch it again? We already bombed with it. It didn't sell very well. What you see in stores in France, if you can find it, is old inventory that didn't sell very well. Um, That's a different world. You know, like I said, it, you know, if I'd have brought in Izara five years ago, you know, we probably would have sold 100, 200 cases a year. You know, th- this year, you know, just because of what it is, and I didn't know what, you know, what we would do, we'll finish the year selling 2,000 cases, um, you know, for a brand new product. So that's right. a brand new product that's that's got a raised level of attention you can always hang something onto that because bartenders want it. And you could actually, you know, I, you know, I will be talking to them. They've given me an unequivocal no. Um, they do not want to launch that. Um, in the face of that, you know, the Quantro family owns another brand called Reverend de Verlet, which is also very historical and has always been at that strength. 
And so, you know, I, of course, you know, I don't want to see that brand at a different company. I'd rather see it at this company. Um, so it's, and to me, it's still a separate issue. Um, you know, it's a separate issue. I don't for Veveran de Verlet have a groundswell of people that immediately want to jump on it that we had with this product. So it's going to take a different path, even if it has a rightful place in that herbal space, uh, that plant liqueur space. And it's a delicious product. I imported it, Alon lined it up for me 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. I mean, we brought it in. It was, yeah. It was fantastic product. I've, I like those things. I'm German. Germans like bitter liqueurs like the Italians, you know, or the spicy, the, you know, the kind of robust liqueurs that uh, they are. And the French have a unique knack for making fantastic liqueurs. You know, what you tend to find in the rest of the world is those type of liqueurs are much sweeter. And, and today, you know, with or bartenders, or bartenders would rather decide how sweet a cocktail should be that they want to make. Right. And so you need a really good quality base spirit for that to give the flavor you want, and then you build on it. You know. So now I find that the products that are off—not always, but a lot of the products that are offered to us—are just incredibly sweet. And you know, the French seem to have a solution for that because they either do liqueurs or they do cremes. Right. So if you're going to do a berry, a cassis or, a, you know, or a, fra, a frambois or you know, raspberry liqueur, blueberry liqueur, blackberry liqueur, and you do it as a creme, you know, because those fruits don't carry sugar. Right. I think. So, yeah, there's, you know, it's interesting. And I mean, I, and what's also interesting, we can wrap this up. I know you, you know, your time is coming up on it is that, from my old company to this company, we went from a company that was very heavy and entrenched and lots of amazing whiskeys. And in this company, we felt, you know, well, we've got to get a lot of amazing whiskeys and we picked up a lot of them and they're very hard to sell. And the real thrust is in the liqueurs and the modifiers. And that is absolutely because of bartenders. Of course, consumers learn from bartenders, oh, this tastes great. And then they go to retail stores and buy things and make drinks and things. And so we've, I've seen such a shift over, you know, 15 or so years from this whiskey phenomenon, which has not gone away. We know how well bourbons and those things sell, but I tell you, liqueurs never did what they're doing today. And right? through well, I think that's certainly the case with our audience. Mm. And through COVID, you know, people started to make cocktails at home. Yep, absolutely. And that's going to stay. Well, I know it's I know it's here to stay in my home. And uh, Allah, Henry, thank you so much for taking the time to share these amazing flavors with me. I think the story, you know, it's 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 a long, interesting story with with uh, some some interesting little little rabbit holes to dive into, but it's a story that's still being written. So we're excited. I speak on behalf of my audience. I know my audience is, is excited to get their hands on some of these bottles. I know they'll get in touch with me if they have any issues locating them. And uh, you and I can work together to point them toward the venue that's easiest for them. And I just want to raise a glass to you both. It was a little Izara Vert. 
and say cheers and thank you for being at my guests here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, herbal liqueur history and insights courtesy of Henry Price and Alain Royer, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a production of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast, copyright 2023.